Hi, I'm Fiona. I'm a mother, a birth keeper, a teacher, a woman's mentor, a body worker, a doula, and so much more. Hi, I'm Deborah. I'm a mother, a humanitarian worker, a yoga teacher, and a student doula. In this podcast, we bring together women who share their journeys to motherhood with us. We want women to share their doubts, their fears, what they've learned along the way, and their memories. Our goal is to inspire, inform, and empower. Each woman is unique and has a story to tell. We hope that you'll love these stories as much as we do. Welcome to the Becoming Mother podcast. Hi, Deborah. It's so nice to see you again. So nice to see you too. Thanks. Um, I know that I know that we both got sons, and you know this podcast is about mothering and motherhood. And how are you finding having a how, how old is he now? About eighteen months. Almost eighteen months. Um, <laughs> And uh, I'm loving it, to be honest. It's not easy every day. He's uh, teething at the moment, so he's quite grumpy. Uh, not a very happy chappy. But um, what I really enjoy is uh, seeing him grow more and more in, into his own personality. And that's so I find that so fascinating because you can see, like, even if um, you know we we are here to support him and and love him. He's very much his own person, and I, I find that so interesting. <laughs> and 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 I'm here to tell you that it doesn't change. My son is 15, <laughs> and, and I promise you, you just got to still love them and support them, and actually just let them be who they are, and just don't interfere. Really, the more you can get out of the way, the easier it is. I think you will have to remind me that in 15 years. <laughs> Absolutely, I keep reminding you. <laughs> Lovely. So today we're doing something a little bit different in that uh, we are going to play a little voice note that someone has sent us and we don't know who it is, so we're going to listen and we would love you to yeah, share feedback with us of um, how you think, what you think, how you feel. Let us know. Hi Debo, um, I just remembered I haven't given you feedback on your podcast and um, I promised I would. Um, a bit difficult to think back now, but um, I, I totally enjoyed it. It was so special hearing your guys' story. Um, so many similarities as well um, in terms of kind of these birthing stories, but then um, every story is completely unique as well. I loved it. I actually can't remember hearing, you know, that kind of level of um, detail and um, kind of reflection on, on what happened from you guys directly, which, so I completely enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, I had goosebumps the whole time and it reminded me um, of my own story and Kian's and Lorik's birth. And it's so special that you've also got a, a record of it, uh, a verbal record, not a, a written one um, for Timur in the future. I think it's absolutely amazing. And it's awesome to share um, real, honest and positive birth stories. Um, so I think that part is very cool. I think the only thing I didn't hear in your podcast was the the part about um, 
you know, once the birth is over and then suddenly you still need to kind of birth a placenta. <laughs> I don't know, it was a bit of a surprise to me um, somehow. But yeah, that, that's just the feedback I wanted to give you. I hope you guys are well. Um, I hope Marcus is well. I haven't had a chance to chat to him. I'm going to try and find some time um, that works for him as well. Okay, but send him my love. Bye. <laughs> I love that. So nice to get feedback and, and people's responses. And I, you know what I love, Deborah, is that every birth, like she said, is unique. But every birth, like for some people, like for her, the placenta was a big deal. For other women, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, and then I birthed the placenta. Oh, I forgot about that. Like everybody is different in that some things are a big deal and some things aren't. And I always say to my couples, you get the birth that you need not the birth that you want necessarily. And women can have an amazing birth and then have issues with breastfeeding or the or birthing the placenta. And it actually it actually doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is that you've got the capacity to just deal with what comes up and ride the waves. Yeah, it's funny when I'm I'm hearing this, I'm like, I ha I have no recollection of birthing the placenta. I don't remember anything about it, which is really weird. Yeah, I love listening to this voice note because I really feel that it's a gift when a woman come to our podcast and shares her story with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, that voice note. So please keep sending them. <laughs> yes, please keep sending them. We love to hear from you. Uh, and now we are going to listen to Lisa's story. I would love to just welcome you, Lisa. I mean, I um, was trying to reflect. I, I met you in your pregnancy, in your first pregnancy, when you attended my hypnobirthing course. I've loved hearing your stories uh, of your births, and so that's why we invited you. Also, because you are a doctor, not just a mother, but a doctor before you became a mother, um, I thought it would be so lovely to hear from you, to share with, with the audience um, of what that's like. So if you can just introduce, you know, who you are, your age, what your family is made out of, you know, who's all in your family. Cool. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Like you said, Fiona, I think you've played a big role in my journey so far and meeting Debo as well now as part of our mothering journeys and some work journeys as well going ahead um, is so exciting. So thank you for for having me. So I'm Lisa. I'm 33 years old. I live in Joburg with my husband Oliver and our two children, Zoe, who's four, and Felix, who's two. And I work yeah, here in a maternity practice uh, as a medical doctor and just recently um, underwent doula training and going through my certification. Um, so as working a little bit as a student doula here and there. Lovely. And so can you share with us how you met Ollie? Yes, we met. And take your time. A, yeah. <laughs> so it's not a very long story, but we met in a bar in Joburg. <laughs> very like cliche story. But um, I was a medical student. He is working. He's a lighting designer by profession. And yes, we randomly met in a bar. I was out with my friends and he was with his. And we just uh, sort of got chatting and We both come out of long-term relationships and sort of became friends and and sort of just hung out quite a lot in the months that followed. 
and yeah, just slowly evolved into, or maybe not so slowly evolved, but we yeah just uh, really enjoyed, I think, each other's company. And although being quite different, I think exposed then each other to different things. And he was quite different to any sort of partner I'd had in the past. Um, so it was quite refreshing and to meet someone new and different um, like Ali. So we met in 2011, I think, 2011, and we got married in 2016. And then our first child was born in 2018. Lovely. Nice. Did you always know you wanted to become a mother? And how did you and Oliver uh, decided to have a baby? Yes, most definitely. I think growing up, when people would always ask, you know, what do you want to be when you grew, grew up? I think the thing foremost in my head was that I wanted to have children. Um, it didn't really matter sort of what vocation I did. It, I just, I knew children were always in the plan. I think I've got a very good relationship with my mom and I think that's also just probably stemmed from that relationship and childhood that I also wanted to experience the same I think soon after Ollie met I would talk about kids and having children and you know it didn't scare him off so (laughs) I was I I always wanted children very young because my mom was also a young mom I wanted children sort of as soon as possible whereas he was more traditional thinking in that getting married first and having children and whatnot so soon after we got married in 20 as I said in 2016 I'd been on contraceptives for years and then so went off contraceptives after shortly after we were married and then it did take quite a long time to get back into normal cycles and I actually we struggled to fall pregnant for with our first pregnancy I went to see a gynae after after having left the oral contraceptive and not sort of seeing my normal return to cycle eventually went to a gynae who gave me the go-ahead that everything was okay and she said if you know if you don't fall pregnant in the next six months then let me know but still I just felt that something wasn't sitting right and I felt like that something you know was not wrong but that I just it was probably effects of the oral contraceptive as well that I just wasn't falling pregnant um anyway then long story short I ended up going to see a fertility doctor who said that I had a low ovarian reserve or low egg count. So we did what's called ovulation induction, where they just helped me to ovulate because that's what I wasn't doing. And luckily for us on our first cycle of those sort of injections and treatments, uh, we managed to fall pregnant. And, and how was the treatment? Did you, did you have uh, secondary effects? How, how was it? Not really. It was quite a, as I said, because it was the first cycle, it was quite a short period of time overall. So in that sense, we were quite lucky because often, you know, people going through fertility do have very long things that leads to IVF and things, which luckily we didn't need to do. So it was just a a short period of time that I needed to do injections at home. Um, So it wasn't, I didn't really experience any major side effects, but I guess it did take that almost excitement away of, you know, just falling pregnant spontaneously and not knowing. So, so we knew exactly, you know, like when I was going to ovulate and then when to test. And although it was still exciting when I got that positive pregnancy test, it was almost, you know, like we knew. (laughs) So it was still exciting. And then luckily with, with my second pregnancy, I fell pregnant spontaneously. So I think also often being pregnant and, and just sort of kickstarts everything again and, and then your body just sort of finds its groove again. So we're very lucky the second time around. 
You know, I often say to women when they have their first baby, I, I always say, there's nothing like having a baby to make you fertile. Yes. And so many people who've struggled the first time, exactly. all of a sudden are just like, oh, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> it, it really does. It, I've seen that time and time again in my practice over the years, how it really does kickstart um, yeah. everything. Yeah. Yes. I was going to just say also that period then of being off the, you know, contraceptives and having outside hormones and just yeah, having your normal regular hormones be, yeah, as you say, go and sink again. Yeah, and I guess there's also a part that's uh, the, the mental. A cousin of mine, she took two years to get pregnant um, and she had to go through IVF and everything. And, and she said, OK, if it doesn't work, we'll go and travel around the world. But she did get pregnant with the IVF. And then four months after she had her baby, she she got pregnant. Because <laughs> she, she wasn't on contraception. She thought, I can't get pregnant, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, it ha- yeah, I think it happens to many women. <laughs> yeah. And it is. It's a, it, it really is a, it's a, it's a mystery. And I always say that's why women's, um, you know, our, our reproductive organs are inside because we are mysterious. It's not, you know, <laughs> out there like, like men are. We are definitely yeah. more mysterious. And so is getting pregnant and all of that and having babies, et cetera. Yeah. And how were your pregnancies? How, how did you feel when you were pregnant and did you enjoy it? I loved being pregnant. I could be pregnant a million times. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, again, very lucky in my pregnancies in that I didn't suffer from a lot of, you know, nausea and vomiting, just some tiredness here and there. But I think I've, yeah, a friend who was pregnant for my first pregnancy, we were pregnant at the same time and our daughters are actually born on the same day. We always used to say, yeah, just joke that our healthiest was when we were pregnant. I think because you are nurturing, you know, this growing being inside of you. So you are eat, you know, watching what you eat, you're trying to exercise regularly. In my first pregnancy, obviously not having a another child and having more time doing all like prenatal yoga, going for long walks, um, doing some meditation, journaling. I felt like it was actually quite a spiritual experience for me, particularly my first pregnancy. We just felt more connected to my body, connected just to like my surroundings, the earth. So definitely, yeah, enjoyed being pregnant. The second time, a little bit more different with a toddler, having to look after a toddler. <laughs> And you don't, and you, you sometimes feel guilty because you even forget about the pregnancy in the first, especially in the first couple of months. Um, and it's exa- it was much more exhausting. And then in the last sort of couple of weeks, it's a scramble to like, oh, no, I don't feel like I've prepared for the birth enough. And let me quickly try and do some yoga and, and trying to fit in everything. But I think that's just, you know, such as life. And just the more children you add, the, <laughs> the more difficult it becomes. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely love being pregnant so being a doctor and I know that you know in the the training and you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong but in the training that you do in South Africa as a doctor a lot of the time birth you are really just called in when it's there's a problem or when there's an issue Um, so a lot of the time you don't get to see a physiological normal spontaneous labor and birth um, because in you know in facilities it's more contrived so so your journey if you can just share with us your journey of deciding okay so now we're pregnant the pregnancies are lovely but 
how am I going to get this baby out, basically, but with the, with, with the doctor background as well? Yeah, I think, as you say, through the training, we don't see much completely physiological birth. It's mostly managed by the midwives. And even during internship, when we are working in the labor ward and there are, you know, natural vaginal deliveries going on, it's also not under the best circumstances. So often moms are shouted at, they're alone. So even though, yes, the process may be physiological and there's not much intervention going on, just the surroundings are not ideal. And then as a doctor, yes, we we do assist a lot in theater during cesarean births. And for example, in my community service, I was working in a clinic where we weren't involved in the maternity unit at all until there was a problem. So if a midwife was struggling and and me as a community service doctor who'd only done, you know, seen a handful of vaginal deliveries and assisted mostly in seizures, now getting called to help a midwife who's got years of experience where I don't actually know much in terms of them it's actually quite daunting to be to be expected to help in that sort of situation when you don't actually know much about physiological birth so yeah I think that brought a lot of fear to my first birth and I think I, I, ch- I chatted to Theoni about this when I did a hypnobirthing course about releasing a lot of fear surrounding particularly breech births not that my baby was breech but I think I'd just seen a I think the more complicated things I'd seen was regarding breech births and I was holding a lot of fear about my baby's position and so forth. And yeah, so just working through those fears, which is what the hypnobirthing I think allowed in my first pregnancy. And also I think colleague sort of my colleagues, not expectations, but my colleagues perception of birth as well. if I would tell a colleague that I'm planning a vaginal birth, they would, you know, be shocked. And most of them are planning elective seizures. I think a lot of doctors also have a specific personality in that they want everything to be planned and scheduled and know what to expect and manage. They risks. want to be in control. Exactly. We at the end of the day, physiological birth is a lot of out of that control. So I think, yeah, it, it was difficult. And particularly the second time around, I think we'll chat about the birth stories just now, but planning a home birth and mentioning that to colleagues or to even telling colleagues now that I had a home birth. There's a lot of, I would say, judgment and say thinking that I'm a risk taker or, you know, not be doing what's safe. Whereas I think it's just because we haven't had the exposure to physiological birth and the beauty of it in our training that leads my colleague, or not not all of my colleagues, but a lot of my colleagues to not really understand. How did you find out about hypnobirthing? Because I guess it's not very usual for a doctor to prepare for birth with hip- hypnobirthing. Yes, I'm actually trying to think how I first, I think a book. So a friend of mine had, had the hypnobirthing book. She had, she, this was also, a, she's also a doctor friend who'd had elective seizures but a friend of hers had the hypnobirthing book and she had known that I wanted a a vaginal birth so she said oh why don't you read this book and then I started learning more about the book and then I think I discovered Theoni's course online I was also doing the antenatal yoga at Genesis and then I think I just yeah heard about the hypnobirthing and I just thought that it sounded 
interesting just in terms of preparation and just offering sort of a different side to to a low intervention birth which is what I had in mind I think just to add in terms of my birth choices I think also a lot of what my mom had experienced my mom had vaginal births although they were in hospital with gynees and maybe you know back then also did tend to have more unnecessary intervention they possibly needed I think that influenced my choices I had a very good friend who also had a low intervention birth and those I think I think yeah when people around you are having good experiences you know it influences your choices at the end of the day as well and you know you want to experience that too so can you tell us a bit about the choice like when you first were pregnant with your first pregnancy what did you choose and how did it evolve yeah so I started off my first pregnancy with a gynae in a hospital she had been recommended as also being a pro normal delivery gynae and she was really lovely and quite supportive you know came across quite supportive of having a vaginal birth so I used to see her for my routine visits and round about I would say maybe this end of the second trimester there were small things that just sort of came up in consultation that I, I didn't love just in terms of being told already that my baby was measuring on the large side and they picked up maybe some sugar in my urine at one visit so then I had to do that whole sugar test just to check that I didn't have gestational diabetes which I didn't luckily but yeah there were just comments here and there that made me almost doubt you know my ability or doubt myself or doubt my baby then after doing the hypnobirthing course there was a lady who came to share her birth experience and she had told us how she had switched from a gynae to a midwife very late in her pregnancy um, and had such a wonderful natural birth experience. So it got me and Oliver talking and just trying to decide, you know, what was going to give us the best experience. I was, you know, a low risk mom that could birth with a midwife. So we just started chatting about it. We went also back and chatted to our gynae about it. And she was quite supportive. She was actually, funnily enough, also pregnant herself with twins at the same time and also due roundabout when I was due. So although I liked her very much, I was concerned that she probably wouldn't end up delivering my baby anyway. Yeah, a few of her colleagues are also known for maybe being a bit more pro-Caesar. So, yeah, we we went back and forth. Um, My gynae was very supportive and she had recommended midwives. And so then, yeah, probably around 30 or 32 weeks of pregnancy, we changed over to midwives and planned a a birth at at the birthing center Genesis. Yeah, the rest was all pretty straightforward. We saw saw also then we had to get a backup gynae now who supported a Genesis birth. So we saw her again at 36 weeks and she was also lovely. And she said, I better not see you again. <laughs> You're going to burn this baby. You won't need me. We then had, went on to have a, a wonderful experience at Genesis. And then the second time around, we decided, we, we did love the Genesis experience. 
But I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to have a home birth. And in retrospect, it was a wonderful idea. And the timing was really good because it was just before COVID hit or at the time that COVID hit and the first the timing of the first lockdown. So if we'd been in any other center, I probably would have been alone. Oliver wouldn't have been able to probably be with me all the time. Our daughter Zoe wouldn't have been able to be there. So it was in retrospect, the best decision we'd ever made. And so then went on to have a midwife-led birth um, at home. And yeah, the first the first birth, I also I had a doula as well who I brought on. She came onto our team sort of late in the pregnancy. She had been teaching me antenatal yoga, which was also a wonderful support. And then the second time, I think because we knew a bit more what to expect and I knew that Ali was also quite hands-on and involved, that we didn't then feel like we needed a doula the next time. Yeah, so those were the choices we made in terms of birthing. And if, if we had any more children, I think it would also be home, home-based. <laughs> That's so interesting. And do you have any colleagues who also had a home birth or the doctors? Um, not that I know of. Certainly not close colleagues. Um, I think I've made some connections via social media and things where I've seen other doctors having midwife-led births but no certainly most of my colleagues close colleagues and friends although some of them do want vaginal deliveries it's with a a gynae in hospital it was interesting what you said about your fears because your fears come from the other side because you've seen birth before and you, you you've seen what can go wrong so your fears were more related to that rather than the unknown and not knowing what you were going to expect when you give birth I guess Yes, yes. Yeah, I think the not knowing what to expect from a, a, a sort of pain point of view was maybe what I was concerned about. But yes, you're, you're right. The things that can go wrong in birth, but I think also just bringing it back to yourself and realizing, you know, you are low risk if you put in the preparation as well all those sorts of things. And knowing that, yes, if a complication arises, your care provider is trained, you know, to deal with that. And whether it's a midwife who's trained in natural birth, you know, trusting that they will deal with it timeously and if a referral needs to be made, it will happen quickly. And the same, you know, I think I've mentioned to Theone at one of Theone's classes before is just that even if you're in a hospital setting and there's an emergency, it still takes time to get to theater if you need an emergency seizure. So if you are staying in the close vicinity of a, a hospital or the birth centers in the close vicinity, that referral can still happen quick, probably as quickly as you being in the hospital going to theater. So it's all relative. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's not like movies. Yeah. Mm. A lot of people are not aware that it actually doesn't matter where you are. It takes time. You know, that yeah. no one's just sitting around going, I wonder if someone's going to come in. It's like, no, people are need to be assembled. Yes. So will you share with us your experiences, your birth stories? So how, how was your first experience with Zoe? <laughs> and then from there. Yeah, so Zoe... We let's maybe start from just the couple of days before um, her birth. So, like I said, I I did a lot of sort of preparation for the birth, just in terms of physically, mentally, 
Um, and one of the things that I loved doing was just sort of sometimes just doodling or coloring in or journaling and just found it quite sort of grounding and becoming a bit more mindful of the experience. So the day before I went into labor, Oliver was working. So he was out. I was alone at home. And I just had this sort of sense that things were about to change. You know, I was on the edge of this abyss and we were about to just go for it. So I sat and I just journaled and just wrote about sort of my excitedness for for the birth and, and for becoming a mother, but at the same time just feeling a little bit sad that the pregnancy was coming to an end. It was sort of just this contrast of emotion. I wrote this this journal entry and then went to sleep. And then a few hours later, about three in the morning, I got up to go to the loo, as you do when you're heavily pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I thought I was just having a Braxton Hicks sort of contraction. I just felt like some tightening. And then I went to the bathroom, I came back. And then a little while later, that I've had that same sensation. And then again, and it, then I just noticed that these Braxton Hicks, what I thought were Braxton Hicks, were coming more regularly. So. In hindsight, I should have gone back to sleep <laughs> because it was three in the morning and <laughs> and I should have rested, not knowing, you know, the marathon that was ahead of us. But I got, as first time parents are, we got excited. I woke up Oliver and the first thing he thought was that we were being burgled. So he was like, <laughs> and, um, living in Joburg. <laughs> um, but then we got so excited and we just we lay in bed for a little while and then we started sort of timing these sensations off the bat and they were about 10 to 15 minutes apart so then at sort of four or five in the morning I took a long bath <laughs> and we put on um, sort of some relaxation uh, music um, also the in hypnobirthing we did this rainbow relaxation that we used to listen to on a nightly basis during the pregnancy after doing hypnobirthing we would listen to it before going to sleep we put that on um while I was in the bath and yeah we just took, had a slow morning it didn't seem to be the sensations weren't sort of increasing in intensity but they were definitely there um so we let you know come I think it was about seven in the morning we let our midwife know we let our doula know and they had just said just to keep in touch and see, you know, as things progressed. We live next door to a park, so we went for a walk in the park. And then things did start getting a little bit more intense. I would sometimes have to stop to breathe through the contractions. So we took the short walk and then we came home. I was also feeling like I needed to go to the bathroom a lot, just with every contraction. My tummy was working. So then, and then our doula came through. And she was great at sort of also just calming the space. We put on uh, like some series on TV, we watched TV, and we did some yoga on and off in our living room, just some stretches. She also did some craniosacral therapy. But things didn't really seem to be like revving up. It just sort of seemed to be staying the same. So we let our midwife know. She said, no, maybe try have another bath. So after the second bath, or during the second bath, then our doula also said she was going to go and collect something, and then she would come back. And I don't know if it was yeah a combination of having the, another bath, and then I think maybe also just the leaving of the doula and coming back. I think just that 
I think sometimes now knowing that sometimes when you're feeling too observed that you maybe, you know, I don't want to use the word perform, but that you, <laughs> you know, don't progress because you may be feeling a little bit watched. So I think it was maybe also that sense, but then the contraction started coming much closer. So we said to Ardula, no, rather meet us at Genesis. We're going to go through there now. We hopped in the car and the car ride, I think, was the worst part of the labor. Me not knowing where I should have been sitting, I sat in the front, strapped in, <laughs> and every bump was <laughs> was torture. <laughs> um, I also was experiencing a lot of back labor, so I felt most of my contractions in my back, not so much in the front. So yeah, it was a really uncomfortable car ride, and it's only about eight minutes, five or eight minutes down the road. We got there, our midwife met us there. Oh, no, so before the midwife met us there, it was just the staff midwives. They said, no, they need to put me on the machine to check the baby's heartbeat. And I could not lie down. My back was so sore. I was like, I can't lie down to do this. So they were trying to strap it while I was sitting on the ball. And then the midwife arrived and she said she would, could she examine me, do an internal exam and see, you know, how far we are. So she did the internal exam and she said, do you want the good news or the bad news? So I... <laughs> I had said the, the good news first because on the way to the clinic, my biggest fear was that I wasn't going to be as progressed as I thought I was. And then I thought that's the only time in my mind I thought that I may need pain relief. Maybe I was considering an epidural in the car on the way there because I was like, if I get there and I'm only, you know, not in active labor, then I'll definitely need <laughs> pain relief. But I said, no, the good news first. And the good news was that I was seven centimeters dilated. But the bad news was that baby's position wasn't optimal. So baby was lying what they call posterior or spine to spine. And that's what was also causing my back labor. So she said, no, it, it's okay. We can, we can do this. So I, they ran the bath for me. So I was in the shower on a ball with the hot water on my back, which was really nice. Um, I was in and out the bath, but I wasn't that comfortable there. And yeah, this went on for a, a little while. I remember at one point sitting in the bath, just saying to my midwife, how much longer is this going to be? And in retrospect, that was probably that transition phase where I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> and she turned around very blase and she said, as long as you want it to be. <laughs> so I think I was holding a lot well. And she just kept on telling me to let go, let go. Uh, yeah, I don't think I was fully sort of surrendering and relaxing into it which is yeah difficult and obviously requires all, all the preparation that I thought I had done. <laughs> but yeah, eventually then I, I gave birth, actually not in the water, but on the bed, propped up sort of against the headboard of the bed with one of my legs on my midwife's shoulder, sort of using her as counter pressure. And it was a little bit of a difficult pushing stage because of Zoe's position. So she was facing up. So the pushing was a little bit difficult. But eventually she did come out and came straight on my chest. She had a bruise on her forehead from her position, which settled over the next couple of days. And I did have a, a small tear that needed stitching. But yeah, that was that was it. Um, so it had been about 19 hours from the first time I felt the contraction till she was born at about half past 10 that night. So it was definitely more of a marathon than, than I had expected. <laughs> You're very, um, what's the word? Like, oh, yeah, she was posterior. And, but you didn't explain exactly what position she was in. She wasn't only posterior. You've got to explain how she yeah. was. 
So they also call it deflex. So when their head is not, when their head is tucked nicely and their chin is sort of on their chest and they're in that optimal position, the diameter of the head that comes out is much smaller. So she had, she didn't have her chin tucked. It was a little bit up. So it was her forehead that was coming out first and looking up. So, so it is a, a, a difficult position because the diameter of the head is a little bit bigger and they can sometimes just get a little bit stuck as well in the pelvis. So that's, yeah, definitely made the pushing part a lot more difficult than anticipated. And I think in a different setting, um, I don't think I would have been given as much chance to push her out. Often they use just what I've seen in my workplace. They often use like an assisted delivery, like a vacuum or sometimes going to Caesar usually early on so possibly if I'd arrived at hospital if I was in a hospital and they'd known that baby was like that they may have suggested a Caesar even from early on yeah so I mean that is the most difficult position posterior and brow presentation and I I love the fact because we've spoken about this before that you know they were saying that the baby was big and the baby was big and tell us how big she actually was she she was only 2.7 kilos Um, so yeah she definitely measured big um early on and this is what I also tell moms now when they're panicking that their babies are big is that babies go through growth spurts at different rates you know as people also people doing the scans also measure differently and sometimes overestimate sometimes underestimate and and at the end of the day those ultrasounds can be about 500 grams more or less so they're not which is a lot (laughs) <laughs> a lot. and particularly the later scans people base a lot of decisions on those later scans where they're not as yeah, accurate depending on baby's position and who's scanning and so forth so so yeah a lot of weight is put on a lot of no pun intended but a lot of weight is put on those ultrasound um scans and how did your second birth go then and uh, and why did you decide to do a home birth and, and not give birth at genesis Although I loved the Genesis experience, I just think that drive to Genesis had was not great. I really didn't enjoy the drive. And I just, I think after my first birth, I became much more interested in physiological birth. I joined a lot of groups, um, listened to podcasts, just sort of immersed myself in like the birth world and just came to be exposed to a lot of people having home births. So I love the idea of just being able to get into your own bed straight afterwards and just, you know, sort of bond as a family and just that uninterrupted family time. And I also just love the idea of having Zoe with me. Zoe, my daughter, she's quite a sensitive personality and her and I are very, very close and we never have been away from each other much. So I just, I definitely wanted her to be there. So the decision yeah, for home birth was quite an easy one. And the midwives that I'd used in my first pregnancy also supported home births. So I could have the same providers helping me. With Felix's birth, I was working part-time in a clinic and I'd planned to go on maternity leave about 38 weeks, which in hindsight was leaving it a bit too late because <laughs> Zoe had come just before 40 weeks. So I anticipated about the same with Felix. So I'd finished work on the Friday and then there was talk of all these lockdowns starting. So that weekend I spent, um, Zoe and I went to just like 
did some shopping. I needed to still get like the birth space ready just in terms of covering, you know, you get some plastic sheeting over some of the beds and, and whatnot. So Zoe and I had done that. Ollie was working. He was scheduled to go on a trip. And then on the Monday morning, so I'd finished work on the Friday. The Monday morning, I was exactly 38 weeks. Then Ollie, I woke up. Actually, sorry, let me backtrack a little bit. Sorry. On the Friday, on the Sunday evening, I was getting ready for bed and I'd had a small little baby shower the second time around just with a close, a few of my close girlfriends and some family. And they'd each gifted me a little bead or a charm to either wear or put in my birth space. So that Sunday night, I was also just sitting in bed and just threading these beads and I started feeling light contractions and I was like okay this is closer than we think and but I did, this time I was I was clever I didn't tell Ollie because <laughs> I was like we need to sleep and get rest tonight so <laughs> so we went to, so I went to sleep I didn't tell him in the, and then they sort of settled I didn't I had a, a good sleep that night and then the Monday morning we woke up and I started feeling some again so I mentioned it to Ollie but I think I didn't make it seem like it was you know imminent or anything so he went I said no go off to work it's fine so he went to work Zoe and I were here and then intermittently I would just time these things and they were very regular but very manageable um, I didn't have any of that back labor that I was felt in my first it was all in the front so I also like was confident that he was in a good position and I, and I think also I was keeping active so I was playing with Zoe outside cleaning a bit cooking I think that's also the difference in my two sort of labors. The first one, I was practicing, I was trying to practice um, a lot of hypnobirthing in my first labor, which was wonderful in terms of calming me and sort of coping. But I think it did keep me a little bit too static. So I think I was reclining a lot. And I think that sometimes contributes to baby not turning. Whereas if I knew now, I maybe just would have been more forward leaning in doing my hypnobirthing. So I think playing with Zoe in the second labor just kept me a little bit active, helped the you know use of gravity, helping the baby to descend and, and be in a good position. Um, and then when Zoe went down for her afternoon nap, I had a shower and then the contractions started coming a little bit faster, a little bit more intense. Um, so I just texted Ali. I was like, I think you should come home. So he said, great. He was on his way home. Then I just let my mom know because my mom was going to come and just look after Zoe just in case she, you know, didn't want to be around me or if I didn't want her to be around, my mom was going to watch her. So Ollie came back. We were still, and I was I was texting my midwife the whole day, just updating her. And she said, no, she's, you know, about 30 minutes away. So I must just give her some notice. But I was like, no, I'm, I'm really fine. I'm managing. I'm, I'm completely fine. So then at about, I think it was about quarter to five in the afternoon, I suddenly felt like a shift of gear. And I said to my midwife, no, I think, please come. And she was like, great, I'm on my way. It had started raining. So she, and I think she got also got stuck in a bit of traffic on the highway. And <laughs> I, I told my mom as well. So my mom said she's also on her way. And then Zoe was getting a little bit niggly. So we just put the TV on for her in the lounge and she was sitting watching some cartoons. And Ali and I were in our bedroom. And 
at about, I think it was probably be at about 10 past five, I said to Ollie, where's the midwife? <laughs> and he's like, she's on her way. She's just a bit stuck. And at 20 past five, Felix was born <laughs> into my arms or the midwife or my mom got there. Um, and I was on the floor. Um, I just had yeah a couple of really strong contractions, one where my water broke, one where it was sort of just a, rest and then the second one Felix was out and I was sort of kneeling on one leg and then just managed to Ollie was behind me I said get ready to catch this baby and he was like he was ready (laughs) but I managed to just touch Felix and put him on my chest and yeah it was amazing we we brought Zoe in but she was shame she just burst into tears because I think she was also just overwhelmed (laughs) with seeing this new little baby and and then my mom arrived and the midwife arrived shortly after, helped me get on the bed and deliver the placenta. And then again, I had a small tear that she just needed to stitch. And then, yeah, she did a little bit of paperwork. We made tea and had banana bread and just got into bed and enjoyed the family time. <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah. Amazing. yeah. <laughs> so wonderful. That's a really beautiful story. Yeah, and, and so with breastfeeding, I mean, how was breastfeeding for both your babies? Um, good. I had very good experiences with both of them. I was lucky in that both of them latched really nicely um, from, you know, the word go. And for my first in Genesis, I got quite a lot of support from the staff there who were very available to help. And I always had, like, good milk supply and so forth. So I fed both of each of them for 18 months each. I stopped only, I think I only stopped with Zoe because I'd fallen pregnant with Felix and it was just exhausting. Then we stopped, but and yeah, a very good experience both both times. I learned a lot from, there's a wonderful Facebook group called Lelesh League, where I think I've learned more about breastfeeding from there than ever in med school. We don't get taught enough about breastfeeding either. So yes, very, very good experiences breastfeeding. And how were your postpartum? And what helped you to to manage um, this uh, this period? Looking back, my first postpartum period, I think I was. I used to say that I I felt like a cloud lifted only after Zoe was about a year old. I think I was not in some. I wouldn't say I had postpartum depression, but I think I did struggle more with the sort of a transition to motherhood than I had anticipated. Although I had friends with kids and I've got, you know, a com- our community, we've got our both of our parents, I've got a sister that are all here in Joburg and very supportive. It just felt isolating at times, particularly during maternity leave when everyone else is at work and things and you are at home and learning about this new baby and having to just figure everything out. And I hated seeing people that you haven't seen for a long time and, you know, they would just make off the cuff sort of comments about not you know, oh, they don't really want to see you. They just want to see the baby, you know. I think it's often with, you know, moms get overlooked where they're doing, you know, the important work. They do, you know, moms are doing the, the most work. It does become a lot about about the baby. So I did struggle with those sorts of feelings in terms of, I don't know, I guess just feeling a bit sidelined or overlooked sometimes. But as I said, I was very supported and, and had a lot of help. And I returned to work each time when each of my children were four months old, which is also a very 
difficult, the most difficult thing, but very lucky in that I would, didn't go back full time. I was still able to spend afternoons with them. And the, the second time around, it was a little bit easier, I would say, a bit easier in terms of Oliver being around a lot. He, he usually travels for work. But the second time, because of COVID, he was he was at home a lot. So a lot of family time, a lot of support at home. Although it also being COVID, we didn't have any, couldn't really have a lot of family support um, and you couldn't even get a takeaway. So it was, it was quite intense, like an intense submersion of family time, but it was, it was good. And both just physically, I think, you know, the breastfeeding, I think helped also with the bonding. Um, it helped also just to, I, I'd, I, I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing, but lost like weight while breastfeeding. So tended to also feel good about my body whereas I know some people do struggle postpartum with identifying with your body again and all the changes I you know I was quite lucky in that and healed quite well although I had stitches both times but they healed pretty well and pretty pretty easily without complication yeah it's interesting because you know after um, I gave birth I also felt the same as you where you feel during your pregnancy, everyone is full of attention and, you know, is uh, looking after you and everything. And then once you give birth, you don't exist anymore. So I think a lot of mothers uh, feel like that when they just give birth. It's all yeah. about the baby. And I remember thinking about my friends that I had visited after they gave birth, where I thought, I wish I had known how it felt. So I would have covered them with attention and I would have sat and cooked for them, you know. But now I know. Yeah. And uh, when I, ha I have friends who, who give birth, I just come and I like, bring so much food and cakes and <laughs> just to spoil them so that they yeah. feel that, you know, there's, they still matter. Because it's yeah. always like oh, we cover the baby with gifts, but we don't really care. We don't even ask how is the mother doing. Mm. Yeah, just that, I, I think you know? mm. I say you don't know what you know. You don't know what you know till you know. So, yeah. you know, so yes, it's only from going through that experience do you realize actually, you know, how important it is to nurture the mother as well. Yet, like you say, also with friends of mine that have new babies, just offering that extra support and, and information when it's needed and just helping it to make it yeah, easier on them. And I think the more that we do that as a collective, sort of the, the more the narrative will change in supporting mothers. And how was the second postpartum? Because that time you kind of knew what to expect and you felt maybe less uh, lost uh, how to look after a baby. So how did you experience the, the second postpartum? Yeah, I think much more, you're much more confident because you know what to expect. The, you don't question yourself as much. Um, you're not feeling guilty about every decision that you're making. Yeah, I think just that confidence of being a second-time mom makes it a little bit easier but at the same time then you also experience feelings of guilt for your firstborn so I had a lot of that especially as I mentioned Zoe being quite a sensitive soul it was difficult to balance attention um, with both of them particularly because we were all at home together during the, the COVID lockdown so we were we were all together a lot and you know times when I needed to feed or to rest and and Zoe she was only two she would also obviously want my attention and so it, it was challenging to balance you know that 
Um, yeah, but now it's, it becomes easier and easier, obviously, as they get bigger and bigger. They, although they're only four and two and still both very dependent on me, the relationship between the two of them is blossoming um, and they're able to play a little bit together and Felix tries to join in on Zoe's imaginary play and it's very, <laughs> and it's, it's amazing, yes. But definitely an intense, having, yeah, having children quite, you know, close together, it's, it's a challenge, those first couple of months or even years <laughs> so how how do you navigate being a, a doctor with quite demanding working hours and being a mother of two so I think whatever pr profession you have as a working mom it's challenging um, and I think I've realized it more so in the couple of you know the past couple of months as my husband's been working more with COVID not being such a big deal he's traveling a lot more So balancing life as a working mom and, and having two small children is, is, is yeah, been challenging. I'm quite lucky in that where I work currently, I'm not full time as well. So I work sort of three quarter days, but I do have some overtime. Like I mentioned, you know, I've got a lot of support, just um, both of our, our moms. So the grannies love spending time with their, their grandkids and um, our nanny Palesa is amazing. Just having that support, I think, is, has been vital for me being able to work. Yeah, particularly now also branching out and doing some, a bit of doula work, which is very unpredictable, as we know birth is. It's added just a different dimension. So that was our next question, because mm. um, obviously you've known Tony for a long time, but you mm. and I met um, during our doula training. Yeah. Uh, and that was interesting because when you introduced yourself and you said... Uh, that you're a doctor, I think a lot of people were surprised. Why would a doctor do a doula training? Yeah. So tell us, why did you decide to do a doula training? What was the thinking behind it? And how do you want to take that forward uh, on your journey? I think since my first pregnancy and learning about doulas and birth and so forth, I think it always intrigued me the other side of birth. So, you know, not just the clinical side, but the the mental preparation that it takes and <clears throat> excuse me, the sort of the support that's needed for physiological birth. It had played on my mind for years being a doula and I could see it as only contributing to my sort of clinical care of a patient, even in not a birth scenario. So just in terms of our training that we did, just learning just soft skills like, you know, listening skills and yeah, that sort of thing. Just I saw it as only benefiting and making me a better, more holistic doctor. A colleague once said to me, you're going to be the most overqualified doula. And I said, no, I'm going to be the best qualified doctor. Because, yeah, I think just, I love it. yeah, the, the different dimension, I think, that it brings. And I also just would love in some way to play an education role just for colleagues. Uh, maybe young med students, anyone really, just to also be aware of that different dimension of birth and, and so that they can also be, you know, better practitioners in their own right. So, yeah, I think just, you know, what the birth space, particularly in hospitals, needs is just that softer, the softer side and not just the clinical. So in, my hope is in some way to to bridge that gap and connect the clinical and the the emotional aspects of birth. 
And did you already notice a change in the way you practice your your profession? Yeah, so I think definitely I'm a little bit more confident in chatting to colleagues about certain things that I think may, you know, may benefit patients or I think they've also seen, I've attended a couple of, of births um, as a student doula in the hospital, and I think they've already been exposed now, you know, just even just creating a nice environment in the hospital, how how it impacts the, the patient's um, psyche and their experience of their birth. So I think, so, you know, slowly but surely it will, it will infiltrate. But yes, definitely just about counseling moms about their birth choices and advocating for doulas as well in having that extra support not just for the moms but for the partners as well definitely I think it's already playing a positive role in my profession yeah you know if I you talk about having an impact and I just feel you know you talking now about you know wanting to educate you know new med students etc you know when I started being a doula 27 years ago there was no skin to skin after cesarean there was no such thing as that. There, there weren't doulas. I did the first doula training in South Africa. So it's, you know, we've come so far and I think it's so much better than it was because in all hospitals now when they do Caesars, they usually do skin to skin. Mm. So that already is such a huge difference and I think we can only get better and better at really looking at moms and babies and how they need and partners and how they need to be kept as a unit. Um, And, and, and that, that first, you know, imprinting is so, so vital and so important, Mm. but obviously the prep to get there is also what's, what it's about so that you know what to ask for and what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So on closing, I've really loved this time, but I would love to know, you know, what your words of wisdom would you, would you would like to share with the moms and people that are watching, the parents-to-be that are, are listening to this, and what would you like to share with them? What would you like to share that you maybe didn't, weren't told or things that you've learned? Like you touched on now is just being informed. I think, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to birth choices when it comes to parenting choices making informed decisions I think is what's important and and decisions that you feel comfortable and safe with so everybody's sort of you know version of safe is different so knowing sort of inside you what feels good for you and what works for you and your family and at the same time just trusting you know trusting yourself and trusting this physiological process of birth as well, which I think in, as a society, it's, there's not a lot of trust in it. I think we made to feel not to. So trust and surrender, I think, is so important in birth and in, in parenthood, just to enable you to feel confident with your decisions. I think that's about it. Thanks, Lisa. That was uh, really interesting to hear your your story of um, natural birth uh, from a doctor in South Africa and how uh, your perspective is so entrenched all the things you've learned, your own experiences and how you are so passionate about wanting to change the mentalities. So thank you for speaking with us today and sharing your stories. Thank yes, thank you, Lisa. It's been so lovely to... Yeah, I just love the how, how life unfolds. 
you know, and I remember that Deborah sent me a picture on WhatsApp. She goes, look who I'm with. I'm like, oh my word, she's with Lisa. What are they doing? Like, how do they know each other? <laughs> Like, oh, and it's just so wonderful for me to see those connections also happening mm. of like my, you know, my people in inverted commas, you know, coming together. It's, it's beautiful. So thank you for, yeah. for being here with us. So um, for those who are listening to us, um, Lisa is a doctor and a doula. So if uh, you want to reach out to her, you can send her an email to lisa.spark at live.co.za. Thank you so much, Lisa. You know, Deborah, I have listened to Lisa tell her story many times, obviously not in so much detail because she's come to my classes many times over the years um, to tell well, her first birth story. What I love is that she talks about how she journaled and how through her pregnancy and that she knew that she wanted to do one last entry and she knew that after she had done that entry, the baby would come. And the beautiful thing is she had a moment to herself. Her, her husband went away or was out and it was just so lovely how she got to have that moment to write in her journal. And a couple of hours later, she went into labor. And again, speaks to that, you know, mother's intuition. What I really liked about her story is that for me, it gives confidence to other women. Because if a doctor who knows so much about birth, about everything, is confident that it is safe to give birth at home, everyone can do it. And I love that image of her after she gave birth to her second child, um, having banana bread in her bed with her husband and her baby in her arms. <laughs> I, I just ticked in my mind. I, I find that image so beautiful and um and that's what it is. You give birth at home and then you can just chill in your own bed. <laughs> how, how amazing. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay, we're going to listen to another voice note. We still don't know who it is coming from. So let's see. Hi, Theoni. I hope you're doing well. Um, it's been a while since we've spoke, but I just I thought of you because I just listened to Kathleen's episode on or, yeah, episode on becoming mother. Um, and I wanted to reach out to say thank you for the podcast um, as a whole. I found Kathleen's episode quite, I resonated with quite a lot of what she said, particularly around postpartum. And you know, I've also been like hyper vigilant for postpartum depression and expected it to look a certain way, but just listening to how Kathleen described it. I think um, I definitely do reflect or mirror some of that, particularly around not wanting to go out with baby because, you know, I'm, I'm certain someone is going to snatch her. So there's that to think about. I actually like laughed out loud when she said that motherhood, motherhood is a cult and you get initiated by your kids. Um, <laughs> it's some, and like no one can truly prepare you for it. It's something that, <laughs> I said to Wendy last week, Friday, in like a tear, you know, a fit of tears. I was like, why does no one fucking tell you about this? So it's just quite funny because I've had a few of those moments where I was just like, why did no one tell me? Um, and then, yeah, I just, I found the, the episode to be really affirming um, and that I'm not alone and that, you know, no other mom is alone because as much 
as there is support, it's still it's still a, an individual journey. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd reach out and say hi and say thank you for <laughs> for the podcast. I really love that. You know, people can, like you said, Deborah, we were, we were chatting earlier, is that, you know, people really are sharing so much about themselves and it's helping other women, you know, where they are in their journey. And I feel like that's what this podcast is about. It's about creating a community of like-minded women that are there to support each other, you know, and these two people don't know each other, Kathleen and, and this person who left the voice note don't know each other. Um, but there's such a lovely connection and a link that they share now through the work that we've done. Yeah, I'm very touched when I hear this kind of comments um, because it, it makes me feel like what we are doing is worth it. And hearing somebody saying, I'm not alone. Um, that means a lot because I know how lonely postpartum can be and how lonely and hard it is when you are with a newborn, you are tired, you don't know what you're doing. And it is fucking hard, as she says, <laughs> uh, as beautiful as it can be. And uh, and as, I think that's what we wanted to do with this podcast. Um, we wanted women to feel heard, to feel seen, to feel loved. Um, so... That's what we're trying to achieve here. So that's really good to hear that people are relating to it and, and enjoying it. Feel free to rate um, and comment. Um, and please give us feedback, um, your thoughts about the episode. Um, and we would love to receive more voice notes and messages. We are doing this podcast, obviously, on our free time uh, in our busy lives. And we are doing it with all our hearts. So um, you can show your support by uh, liking, sharing, uh, leaving a comment. It, it helps us a lot. So in the next episode, uh, we're going to chat with Elena, uh, who is um, an old friend of mine. And she just had um, uh, twin boys. Nothing in life prepares you for finding out that you're having twins, which is 1000% true. <laughs> we went to my first appointment, my first ultrasound appointment. Um, just to make sure everything was okay. And I remember before we went, I was like, no matter what she says, we'll be fine. As long as it's not twins, I can't deal with two babies. <laughs> and <laughs> I said that to Sam. <laughs> I said that to Sam. And um, we went and they did the whole, you know, the like thing, like, here's the heartbeat. And I remember, like, I was just like, so like, filled with like, awe you know I can't believe it like there's a little baby and then she was like and here's the other heartbeat and I just burst into tears like I <laughs> Sam Sam started cracking up like Sam's reaction was to just like he was in hysterics and I was crying thank you for listening to the becoming mother podcast we hope you felt inspired touched and that you learned something Feel free to share the love and share this episode with your sisters, your mother, and your friends. Follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook, becomingmother.podcast, and you can email us at becomingmother.podcast at gmail.com. If you feel called to share your story, reach out to us.